The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! Definitely, I think I have a real f- sort of fear of making making choices, sticking with my, you know, sticking with a decision, committing to something. You know. And I don't wanna die till the living's been done. Lord knows I've had my fun, getting high in the noonday sun, watching them come and go one by one. Yeah. I just don't have it figured out. I haven't figured it all out yet. <laughs> but maybe I never Yeah, I don't. You know, I don't care. I don't care that I haven't. I mean. I don't know if there's anything to figure out, but... I mean, I, I think I use sort of men and women. I mean, the relationships between men and women, which I find... I mean, it's just... I'm always thinking about that, I guess, you know, but... Um, well, I mean, I don't know. I'm, a, I'm kind of obsessed with, I don't know, finding, you know... That woman, that, I don't know, like a wife, you know, whatever. Um, not obsessed, but I, I mean, you know, I want that just like everyone else, I guess. Just don't be, yeah, yeah, you, you, you know, you probably aren't really, you probably aren't like John Lennon, but it's alright, you know, I mean, just. You know, you is fine. <laughs> Brendan Benson is yeah, this, this the one, alright, you know. It's liberating. There's something wrong. Oh, oh no! There's something wrong with my hands. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't feel them. Jay's, let me let me see those. Let me see those things. Yeah, Can you feel it. this? No. How about this? No. What happened? My hands—they're freezing cold. <laughs> well, James, you are very much in luck here. Shoo! Go away, ambulance. We don't need you anymore. They're gone. The ambulance is gone, James. I, I didn't even know you called them. You got good old Dr. Paul here. I have a life alert for you specifically that I pressed the button on. But they can go away because you are in luck. Yeah. You're in luck. Do you know why? Well, I would assume it's because you're a doctor and you're going to fix my... No! That's not... That's not why. Well, then what? what what's, James, what's the good news? James... Yeah. I've got those hands that heal. Paul, you're making my heart so warm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Mr. Benson, if you heard any of that, I apologize. Anger management says that you should count to ten, and so you could start at one Mississippi. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, Lapalco. Then you'll be sitting pretty. Uh, I'm Paul Kaminsky. I'm James Kaminsky. Welcome to our strange Jack White podcast, <laughs> where we're approaching 90 episodes somehow, fast and furious. And we forgot how to do this. And we totally forgot. James and I haven't actually recorded an intro or an outro in, I want to say, a calendar month, at least. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, anyway, this is a Jack White history podcast, where we go over uh, Jack White movies and films and records and all that stuff and sometimes we do an artist spotlight james and oh i think we've got a good one in I'm store sh- i'm shining that spotlight right on one particular feller uh-huh you might know him better as mr brendan benson ah the benson uh, one <laughs> one half of the songwriting partnership of the raconteurs one fourth of the saboteurs of course solo act uh, white stripes affiliate record label manager pop star in his own right so hey brendan benson we love him we love that guy and he has had quite the history with jack white and third man records as Anybody who is a fan of the Raconteurs would know. Yeah. Like Paul said, he's he's a quarter of the Raconteurs slash Saboteurs, and mm-hmm. uh, he has a long and storied history in Detroit and beyond, as well as his own record label. His solo career is excellent. One could say that the Raconteurs sound wouldn't be the Raconteurs without him. Yeah. He lends a lot of his songwriting or aesthetic. Yeah. It's a style, and, and Jack's got a st- Jack's style is so heavy. That if Jack's on anything, he automatically kind of puts it on there. And I feel like with the Racks, they sort of used Brendan's style as a baseline. And then Jack kind of dripped his goo all over it. And that's how you mm. get the raconteurs. Full disclosure, could have chose a less gross way to describe that, but here we are. So, uh, but but no, I, uh, James, I'm particularly excited about this episode because when we did our, by the way, highest listened to episode, the Lost Raconteurs album, I think that's episode 73, I started to do a lot of research into Brendan's stuff, but I had to stop myself because I figured... Figured one day we would get to a Brendan Benson sort of artist spotlight episode, and I am very happy that day has arrived because I'm dying to know more, particularly about his early career and stuff. Because you know he was in the Bricks with Jack really early on; they were mm-hmm. friends. I'm dying to know how they became friends. There's just so much I wanna I wanna learn about this man, this pleasant man, this <laughs> very caring, forlorn songsmith of our time and i'm excited to see what you've got in store james oh and boy paul do i have some good stuff for you but before we get to all of that paul oh yeah we do other things <laughs> on this show <laughs> is there uh, something we should be smelling i believe i smell a fact paul oh what is the most astounding fact the most astounding fact the most astounding fact is the knowledge. Yeah, so this is going back a ways, Paul, but this fact was sent in by Callie Durga, friend of the show and third person in spirit every week, sent in a, a nice little fact in response to a question that we had had during episode 85 our Comalina interview part two, or as Paul titled it, 
the co-host chronicles. Ah, uh, yes, and confused everyone. Mm, yes. Um, we had mentioned in that interview that we weren't sure if Mick Collins had a dog or liked dogs or was interested in dogs. Yes, yes, that's personally. right, because we were talking about Co's dog, and yes. they were talking about having all the dirt bombs meet up for, like, a big family picnic, and Co was saying we bring the dogs, and then she said she thought Mick didn't like dogs, something like that, right? Is that, am I recalling There's, correctly? Yeah, look, this is going back a ways. I think it's safe to say, Paul, neither me nor you remember anything that happens on any show. Yeah, I mean, I, who are you? I am Jack white (laughs) we certainly know enough about him to pass us off james you you and i are gonna get in a trench coat on (laughs) top of each other and we're gonna put a big hat on and we're gonna walk into a recording studio and we're gonna say humpty dum i'm jack white hello happy road (laughs) i'm jackson white yeah you can't forget the white strips do not forget the humpty hum (laughs) Humdy hum there, fellow musician. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll have my dog dressed as Brendan Benson. <laughs> we'll pretend to be the raconteurs. Yeah. And it'll be great. Back on topic, Kelly sent in a fact that she pulled from Mick Collins's very own Twitter feed and Instagram that he does, in fact, have a dog. Mm. Uh, but he hasn't posted about his dog uh, very recently, but he has a dog named Linus. Oh, um, well, that's very so, nice. Yeah. He is embarrassed of his dog and doesn't want to share it with the world. Can we start that rumor, maybe? I'm not going to start that rumor, Paul, I think that dog's actually. I think that dog's actually an armadillo. James from the future here. I wanted to add a drop for an armadillo sound, and this is what I found, and I apologize for that, but this is how armadillos actually sound. Anyway, enjoy. <laughs> Well, that's wrong, and you're wrong, but there's photographic evidence to show this dog. Um, Mick posted about this dog in August. (laughs) Sure, Dogadillo in 2018, Linus, was apparently blowing his coat in the apartment. To quote Mick, for non-dog owners, that means that all of that hair is being shed in an almost cartoonishly rapid fashion, (laughs) and that his apartment looks like something from an art house sci-fi flick. Please send HEPA filters. <laughs> oh, that's very good. Yes. Well, I'm happy to hear that, James. You know, I like dog people. I find myself to be a dog person. I've noticed the tail, and uh, it's freaking me out, Paul. <laughs> and this has been, I think I smelled a butt. <laughs> when I reflect on that fact. is a rough one. All right. James, you got some info to serve up to me here? Yeah, Paul. Let's get to this really cool episode that I have planned for you. James, tell me all about Brandon Benson while the baby, for the love of God, is still sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> of the people we've shown spotlights on, his career is pretty far-spanning and has yeah. a lot of intersections with Jack, but... I'll do my best to encapsulate it here. All right. And I'll try to keep it under two hours. Brendan Benson was born in Royal Oak, Michigan on November 14th, 1970. Ah, wow. 
He's yeah. five years older than Jack. I did not realize that. Yeah. You know, he lived in Michigan for very little when he was a baby, but he would uh, he would live in Michigan on and off uh, for a lot of his life. But him and his family would actually move to Harvey, Louisiana when he was very young, uh-huh. which I did not know. I didn't know he was a, a Southern child. I guess that would explain why he fit in so naturally to Nashville and perhaps why he had such a predilection for groups like the one we're going to be talking to later in this very episode, the Howland Brothers. It could be. It could very well be. His father, it seemed, is the one who wanted to make this move when he was a kid. To quote Brandon, my dad's impulsive, a childlike dreamer. We moved to Louisiana because he wanted to live in the South and be a redneck. He thought that was cool. I spent the first 12 years of my life in a tenement house and I never had a white friend till I was 14. Musically, though, I might as well have been in Detroit. Okay, then. Yeah, his story, you know, it made me connect a little more to Brendan. It made me respect a little more where he came from. But yeah, he he lived in Louisiana in, in this kind of poorer neighborhood, basically on his on a whim from his father. At least that's what Brendan says. This is where most of his early musical tastes would kind of be formed. He would listen to his dad's record collection. He says, when I was a baby, my dad tells me he used to place me on the floor between the stereo speakers and watch my reaction as he played records, Uh, which, Hmm. Paul, I believe is something you experiment with a little bit with your child. Uh, What what the great part is, I don't uh, really care what the reaction is because I'm going to play it anyway. (laughs) Yes. My Vegetables, I'm sure, is a big hit. Flight this baby. Many smiles. (laughs) back to brendan quote apparently i writhed with delight freezing momentarily at certain musical breaks or kicking extra hard in the choruses he did this routinely almost like a sort of schooling maybe it was these early lessons in quotes that set me down the musical path i think my father Hmm. is tragically an unrealized artist always living vicariously through the music I like to think that maybe he was trying to steer me in a direction he wished he'd gone. Oh, I a couple thoughts on that. Where, where's mom in the picture? Or do we not know? No, mom's mom's in the picture. Mom's in the picture. Okay, she is the main figurehead in Brandon's life, I at see. least growing up. She's it seems like maybe perhaps maybe more of the staple force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he talks a lot about how his mom would be the one who takes a lot of the responsibilities. Okay, and that his at least. This is the way it seemed to him as a kid, and his father would be a little more relaxed and want to, you know, do his hobbies and do those sorts of things instead of taking on a lot of the responsibility at home. Right. Uh, the other thing, the other thing about his age is that explains to me a lot of why his first efforts sound very mid nineties. I mean, they were mid nineties, but it it really it paints a clearer picture for me that he's actually more in line with like the Becks of the world yeah, or that kind of like just pre Jack kind of era. Like Jack was the one who you could still kind of lump him in there with that crowd, but he's really more at the tail end of that. And on the beginning of a whole new phase of genre, you know? Yeah. Um, He was of a certain age in the nineties that he was an older, the older end of gen X. Or, or just straight up Gen X. I yeah. think he's just... Jack's only five years off from being a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> that That is true. I digress. Yeah. Go ahead, Jay. Yeah, his, his dad would had a pretty huge, and I would say similar to our taste, music collection, Paul. He, uh, he would play Brandon Music by Roxy Music, The Stooges, T-Rex, Wings, 
David Bowie, to name a few. Speaking mm-hmm. of Bowie, it became one of Brendan's personal favorite artists and albums. David Bowie's Diamond Dogs oh, became yeah. one of his favorites. He's quoted as saying, I was listening to Bowie, not the meters. I wasn't too appreciative, but it seems to have had an impact. One of my favorite songs when I was a kid was We Are the Dead on yeah. Bowie's Diamond Dogs. into monsters and i thought it was spooky and cool now i hear the chord changes and i realize it's sublime that's via the independent uk all right so he would have been six at the apex of wings so it makes all the sense in the world that he would be all whipped up into a frenzy over wings he says i wasn't conscious of anything in regards to bowie he says i just knew that something about that song turned me on but i didn't know how and why i liked the things i did then or now I don't think about it much until I'm asked to. He's he's a little aggressive with some of these reporters. Oh, there you go. I, he always seems a little awkward in interviews and stuff. Jack some Jack takes a much more uh, targeted, almost like playful approach with interviews. Like sometimes when Jack is made to feel awkward in an interview, he'll start interviewing the interviewer in some weird sort of psychological <laughs> mind games kind of way, like that he that is playful. It's like mm-hmm. a joke but sometimes can be biting whenever Brendan gets, and I've watched a few Brendan interviews when we were doing that lost rack and tours episode. And he, he does, he is a little more rambly. It's, he seems a little less comfortable with the repartee, although he is capable of doing it. Yeah. And he wouldn't really get that kind of that interview charisma you're talking about. It's, it's a little lacking, like you're saying, I don't want to say it's lacking, but it's, it's just not, not a strong suit. That's yeah. But, you know, in the Tours, obviously, in some of the interviews I found, he was just as quippy and witty. I, I think that those guys fed off each other the same way the dead weather fed off each other. Yes. Back to Bowie. Benson would later cover the song Candidate off of the same album, Diamond Dogs, on his Upstairs at United album. That's wow. much later on. McCartney and Lennon had their place in his musical repertoire, too. Obviously, I mentioned Wings he listened to. He says all of life is in Lennon and McCartney. And his his music is often compared to Wings and McCartney, which, you know, no doubt is stoked by his cover of Let Me Roll It on his Metairie EP. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the famous, weirdly bluesy hard rock wings song that me and you know very well Uh, he says yeah a lot of people say that in reference to people comparing him to mccartney but john lennon's my favorite i think that i think he's a lot more heartfelt a a lot more honest and pure mccartney it seems to me is more fascinated with the craft of making music with the math you know the technical Mm -hmm. side of things i appreciate both but I'm trying to write music that means something, and I want to explore that musical part, too. So, very interesting, because we learned in our episode, I want to say 65. That's a deep pull, but I think it was 65. The crossover we did with Ryan from Take It Away podcast, we talked about how Jack in an interview said that McCartney was his favorite. 
And yeah, it's weird. Of of the Jack Brendan dynamic, you would think Jack more the Lennon and Brendan more the McCartney, but fascinating that each swapped in their preferences. Uh, I yeah. wonder psychologically what that means. <laughs> I don't know. Their preferences certainly don't make themselves known in the type of music they do, which one Brendan is definitely actually according to his website his music resides on the rock end of the power pop scale yeah. which is McCartney you know it's that kind of yeah it's McCartney it's Badfinger it's any number of these power pop bands he he definitely carries that lineage uh, mm-hmm. on in the same way Jack carries the sort of toothier side of music in his stuff you know the rougher around the edges kind of punk and uh, yeah and uh, delta blues and that kind of thing although brendan has his harder edge stuff too particularly his earlier work but i, I know we'll get there and i'm jumping yes in. but he even mentions it in a q a with la weekly la weekly asks if you could meet anyone who would it be and what would you ask them and he says john lennon i'd ask him what advice can you give me as a songwriter and la weekly continues to ask him questions about john and all that stuff and they get into a conversation he's asked la weekly is asking him you know what does he mean in god when he says god is a concept by which we measure our pain and Brendan goes oh wow i never thought about it i never liked that song i think it might be gibberish so i don't which is not true not true. Well, I mean, I can tell you what it means, which we learned in our uh, our sister yes. podcast, yes. the Yesterday and Today podcast. It was John Lennon talking to Primal Scream Therapy, I guess, doctor in quotes, Arthur <laughs> Janoff, who was explaining to uh, Lennon and Yoko during a primal, or I guess one of their therapy sessions, about his thoughts on religion and how he felt that people who are poor or more disenfranchised or have more sadness in them tend to believe in God more. Mm-hmm. And Lenin extrapolated that into God as a concept by which we measure our pain. Um, so that is how that came about. But you can learn more about that in our Yesterday and Today podcast, <laughs> created and hosted by our father, Wayne Kaminsky, and produced by James and myself. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> plug, 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 plug. His parents would separate when he was a a tween and his father actually moved to Florida and like you know get a new family etc according to Brandon they'd actually become estranged oh. uh, but they became estranged until many years later they they came back together and actually the Miami Herald writer is friends with Brendan's dad and they went to go see him and you know hang out with Brendan and all this other stuff it's actually pretty cool but anyway that's not until like the mid aughts yeah and he and his mom would move back to Michigan when he was in his teens, around the Detroit area. And he would paint and make music as a teen. He, I didn't know he was a visual artist. Uh, he, he wanted to either be a painter or a musician, and he kind of stuck with music. Mm-hmm. But he played in uh, some punk bands in Detroit around this time and uh, started writing music around this time. I was listening to an interview where he said that uh, the first song he ever wrote was called Less and Less about a girl named Leslie, which... sounds like a classic Brendan song because A, it's got weird wordplay and it's about forlorn love. Yep. It's it's very Brendan. I do remember the first song. It was um, about a girl. Surprise. And, you know, it was just about breaking up with her, I guess, and that the feelings kind of, you know, the strong feelings that I had for her sort of subsiding or kind of going away, you know, each day. I was getting better every day and all that. Yeah, it was a, but it was a pretty dumb song. <laughs> oh, yes. That's cute. That's a cute title. I like that. Yeah. He would then try to move out to Oakland, California in the 90s to try and get a record made. 
Uh, so he moved to L.A., Paul, the land of the stars, the Hollywood elites, uh, to try and hand out some of his music. Uh, he went there with about 30 songs that he recorded himself, you know, self-dubbed vocals and guitar on separate tracks and stuff to hand out. He just had 30 songs, which is mind-blowing <laughs> to me. But Well, he must have been in his early 20s, right? Something like that. Yeah, early 20s, like 20 to 25 range in that range. Yeah, yeah. Musicians tend to be very prolific and usually write their best stuff in their early to mid 20s. So, yeah, I, I could see that, especially if he was dedicated to it. And he bounced around jobs, waiting tables, and that sort of stuff while he was there hmm. um, and would leave his West Hollywood apartment to write in the local farmer's market. Whoa, uh, West was Hollywood. Pe- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, What's he, he doing there? Trying to live with his roommate, but not That's loving the, it's it. Not a- it's not a bad part. It's just it's it strikes me as odd that he moved there because it's honestly I don't know what it is what it was like back then. But right now West Hollywood is a little more borderline Beverly Hills. Getting there, getting more pricey, getting more expensive. You're usually an actor if you're there. Uh, so I yeah maybe it makes sense. Maybe it makes sense that he would be he would want to be in the in the thick well, of it. It had a farmers market nearby, so that kind of says something because that's apparently quote his favorite place to be alone and write lyrics at this point in time. I wonder which one he, it was. He would he'd sit by the shish kebab place. So shish kebab. <laughs> there's a uh, there's a farmers market called the Grove in I think it's West Hollywood. It's it's well known as one of the bigger farmers markets, sort of covered outdoor labyrinthian bazaars, and uh, it it was in that complex where they built sort of a outdoor mall next to it and that's where i met jack white at the we're gonna be friends signing so nice if i had to guess i'd say maybe the grove but maybe not i don't know this is around the time that virgin records took an interest in his tape virgin records being a pretty big label yeah and that's what leads us into 1996's brandon benson debut album one mississippi oh yes it's me just It's me just purely And all my crazy superstitions About living in pain Oh, this is my second and last guess Yeah, it's me just purely Oh, and things are gonna this thing is raw. It's pretty raw. It does not reflect the Brendan he would become, I think it's fair to say. There, there is not a lot of overlap between this and his later work. It's 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 hard. It's hard. I would say it's hard. It's like punky. Almost. It's got a different feeling. It's definitely a different time in his life, for sure. Way before he's kind of beaten down by the music industry and took away a lot of his spirit, which is kind of a... A weird way to preface this album, but uh, uh, yeah, he was. I mean, it's he was, just so high energy. It's not even recognizable to me. It's just so high energy for him. It sounds more. Again, it sounds more in line with like a Beck's a bad comparison, but but something like that, I guess. It's I don't know. Really, not that bad of a comparison. You know, Beck is starting to become big at this point he beck is in the pop world and brendan is taking notice of that and so is virgin and all these other places um but put a pin in that for just one yeah. second jason faulkner of the band jellyfish and the grays co-wrote and produced the first version 
of the record in uh, in 1995, which was rejected by Virgin. Interesting. And Brandon would go back into the studio with Ethan Johns in February of 96 and finish the record at Hyde Saint Studios. At some point in this, he moved to the Bay Area, into Berkeley, California. Uh-huh. I have a very quick One Mississippi story. Sure. I listened to that for the first time when I got the signed Brendan thing from his website, and I had never listened to it before. I gave it for a spin a couple years ago, and I was on my bike, just biking around, audibly going, what is this? Like, I was downright confused by it all, because I had never heard any of the songs on it, because it's so... It seems like he doesn't really revisit that stuff. But I guess the Brendan that I sort of know and like is just such a later thing that it, it just, it really did shock me. I was shocked. <laughs> Except me just purely. I knew that one. I, I like that. I like me just purely. Yeah. There's some weird ones on there, like Cherry, that cross-eyed girl, I think is on that one too. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. During an interview, Brendan said, I was promised the world. They talked so big, it scared me. It was when Beck was getting huge. So you're right on the money, Paul. Okay. There was a suggestion that this would happen to me and I wasn't sure I wanted it. <laughs> then Virgin changed owners, and the new A&R guy, Tony Berg, kept saying, I don't know, I don't hear a single. Man, he was the worst thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> he gave me a complex. Anyone who claims to know where Pop's culture's headed, run away. It's about the wow. passion and love for something, that's all. And if what you love doesn't catch on, them's the breaks. Wow. Our old forlorn friend. <laughs> he had a little bit of a bad experience with label execs, with people who don't quite understand where he's coming from. Somebody who listens to your album that is already signed and says, I don't hear a single is terrifying for somebody who's brand new on the scene. Uh, and also a, a lyric from Into the Great Wide Open. and our man said, I don't hear a single. Was wide open. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. In fact, Brendan may have just been quoting Tom Petty. That may have been completely fabricated. Uh, <laughs> I, you know what? I, I got, hey, I don't really hear a single of that album either. But that's not to say that the music doesn't have value. I, I, and you could present really anything. Me just purely is pretty good. I guess me just pure. I guess. I think he was on his way to writing really good songs, and I think this is a great for. But you know what? I don't know if I really hear a single on the White Stripes self-titled debut. I don't know if I really hear one on there either. So like, Long Gone John—that's the difference. Long Gone John was able to give those guys a break, <laughs> and Brendan. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe Brendan was just placed. Too, there were too many expectations placed on his head too early in his artistic development, whereas the White Stripes had the opportunity to flourish and then get picked up by the big labels. and But by that time, had already written all their non-single songs, you know? Maybe yeah. that's what it is. Brandon's kind of thrust into the spotlight too early, maybe. Yeah, he wasn't quite done. Yeah, he wasn't done cooking. No. The record deal that I got with Virgin really kind of almost fell into my lap. You know, I didn't go to the offices and campaign, or I didn't... I didn't send my demo in or anything like that oh, yeah i'm glad i'm glad about it i think that it happened all for good a good reason <clears throat> like i can't say that i really tried for it and 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 i'm not um you know i'm not proud of that either i stand by that i think me just purely is single material i like the song it's a good song uh yeah. but 
I think it could be a good radio play song for the '90s. I think it's it's on par. But I I would like to just go on record as saying I'm a I love Brendan Benson. I love yeah. his songwriting. None none of this is a trying to be derogatory towards of Brendan. Course. I just I just yeah that album confuses me <laughs> on a couple of levels. Well, yeah. you're not the only one. The album was released with very little fanfare. Virgin did next to nothing for it, and the label dropped him cold right after that. <sighs> He was already prepping his his follow-up album, and then they just said no. Like, Wow. It's sort of like the go and sub-pop. You know, it's just like, just nothing. Like, from everything to nothing really quickly. In an interview in 96 to promote the record, the the interviewer was interviewing on the behalf of, like, a Japanese magazine. Didn't care who Brendan was, really. Oh, no. And he hadn't even listened to the album so you'll have to excuse me if there's uh, any inconsistencies here because i'm kind of coming in co- coming into this cold oh okay yeah oh, you haven't heard the record or anything yeah unfortunately i haven't uh, so oh wow sometimes they provide me with that background info unfortunately uh this right. thing was kind of sudden so i didn't have a chance to uh to, to get any, any of the bio materials or uh, or, or the record okay he called the album Mississippi, which Brendan corrected him. So our, 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 our interview starts with this question about the album title, Mississippi, which is apparently oh, which is apparently uh, a reference to the Mississippi River because you're from Louisiana? Um, no, not exactly. Um, I, I mean, it is partly, but um, it's called, it's actually called One Mississippi. Is that, ri- is that written down correctly? Uh, said, I think he said Mississippi. Yeah, it, it, actually, it is. It, is, yeah, it does, does say One Mississippi. He was, yeah. He was, yeah. Oh no, this is all very sad for me. Yeah, no, it is. Like a lot of this forms Brendan's like view of the music world, and that's a whole other side of Brendan Benson, which I assume we will be getting to. But this idea that he is kind of like the Charlie Brown of <laughs> rock music, like he's never quite hits that football, but boy, do we love him, <laughs> you know? You're not wrong. Uh, <laughs> Like, he's such an integral part to a lot of things, and I don't think he ever gets the respect that that's due to him. I think is what we're both trying to say. Agreed. Agreed. He's a very talented songwriter, a wonderful singer, and an incredible musician. Here's a quote from Jack about One Mississippi, and uh, Paul, this is kind of echoing your sentiment. I listened to it in Meg's car, and I have to be honest... I did not like it. <laughs> oh, no. Even Jack's dunking on this thing. But the third, but the third time I listened to it, and I feel like this might be fa- fabricated, but because of the three thing. But but the third time I listened to it, it became one of my top ten favorite albums. Oh, there you go, there you go. Maybe, um, that, maybe that's what I have to do. Maybe I just have to give give it a few more. When when pressed about not liking it, Jack said, "I would say I probably had my head up my ass. We were just so." <laughs> We were just so garage rock and blues centered, explosion centered, and anything off that map I didn't want to think about. But when he listened more, he said, it's just amazing, brilliant craftsmanship, songwriting, and that started to bring me back to my love of Cole Porter and Brian Wilson. Oh, Um, wow. He has a love of Brian Wilson? I I don't hear any of that in his stuff, but great. Good. Yeah. I hear Brian Wilson and Brendan's stuff, for sure. I've recently become a Brian Wilson super fan (laughs) for our listeners at home, and I, in the past year, have been slowly sinking into his crazy abyss and loving every second of it. Uh, So I'm happy to hear... uh, Right. Jack Jack also has that little fetish. 
regarding the album brendan says people find it in dollar bins in some places used online i don't even have a copy of it and i I don't think about it much it's sort of a sad thing but i don't cry over it (laughs) but the good news is over the time it became kind of a cult classic of sorts people started finding it like he said in dollar bins etc and loved it and he started to get some diehard fans esquire magazine would review it in 1999 three years after it came out pitchfork claimed it was an impressively catchy collection of songs whose instant accessibility bellied the complex arrangements that resided just beneath the obvious hooks like wow. it started to get some recognition cool which buoyed you know brendan's musical career and, you know, later on down the line, One Mississippi was, was later reissued with six original demos. Cool. And Brendan would take this failure with Virgin and move back to Detroit from California at this point. He said, I went away from that depressed, he continues. This interview calls it his lost years, which is yeah. fun. Yeah, we've all got those. Brendan continues, but I'd bought a little attic home studio with the advance money. Hey. And, it never, and it never sat idle. We know what that one is used for. <laughs> Brings us to Detroit in 1998. Uh, Brendan Benson meets Jack White. Wow. What was that? I want to hear everything. <laughs> <laughs> he met him at an early White Stripes show at the Gold Dollar. Wow. I was just floored, Benson recalls. I made it sort of a point to meet him. I was living in California, and I felt kind of disheartened by or disenchanted with the music business. Also, yeah. I kind of had my head up my ass a little bit. They both had their heads up their ass. <laughs> They're star-crossed lovers. I love it. But when I saw Jack, I thought, he has the antidote. This would be good for me. I need to hang out with somebody who's f- passionate and just all heart. There you go. It was pure. Yeah. It was unadulterated. Damn it. Whereas I'd run into... S- <laughs> I'd run into so many people that were real cynical and petty about music. I got a little corrupted, you know? I love this. I love it. <laughs> Jack and him became friends, so much so that Jack suggested they work together and collaborate in a, sort of the continuing proto-stripes, the Bricks, where they'd play a show that was most notably in a bowling alley on Jack White's 24th birthday. Yes. Playing alongside Jack White Kevin Peock of the Waxwings fame mm-hmm. and Ben Blackwell, friend of the show and nephew of Jack White and Dirt Bomb and everything. everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Waxwings are kind of a blind spot for me. I know them a little bit, but I, I, we should do a Waxwings episode. We mostly know days. them via Dean Fertita and. See, that boggles my brain. I, you know, I forget yeah. about that stuff. These two are different, something's in between. The White Stripes were just beginning at this point. I mean, they'd been at it for a year. Yeah. More or less, yeah. Brendan apparently tried to talk him out of some things with the White Stripes. Whoa. Uh, for instance, Brendan says, I just thought, who the f*** is <laughs> going to get that, he explains. <laughs> Who cares about that, you know, besides me? At one point, Jack asked Brendan to pass some songs on to his publisher. 
dead leaves in the dirty ground were among them. And Brandon says, I don't think I ever sent it. Whoa. He told, he also apparently told Jack to not do the gimmick thing for the white stripes. He says, do you think this red and white theme is necessary? Because I don't. I thought, if anything, people might just dismiss you as a gimmick. Oh my God. I mean, I, I can see why he would say that. Any, I feel like any sane person would say that. But he's almost contradicting himself there. Well, Anyone who thinks they can see where music is heading, and tra- like it's the passionate people who are doing these weird things that you wouldn't yeah. think to do are the ones that are blazing the trail. It's so just funny course- because he saw this and he went, I love this. And then he tells Jack, don't do this. I like it. Who else will like it? <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, he's still disenchanted. I guess that's what it is. He he really got jaded too early. Mm, I guess. Uh, it, I See, mean, at least Jack's starting to bring the, the passion back out of him. And the, the people around Detroit are at this yeah. time. Brendan's heart grew three times this day. <laughs> I know. I just, I see this kind of stuff all the time where when you're thrust into the, the more corporate situation, the, it changes your whole brain and how you're thinking about creativity and who you're making it for and all that mm. stuff just absolutely gets twisted until you sometimes feel like you can't even trust your own taste. And I can imagine the music industry is probably something similar. He's more machine now than musician. Yeah, right, right. It's interesting that Brendan had that struggle. Yeah, a common struggle, to be sure, for people who are trying to chase a dream. <laughs> anyway, Jack and Brendan would, would remain friends, and Brendan would continue working on his own music in that little attic studio, mm-hmm. uh, which led to 2002's La Palco. Aha! album in line released on star time international label now give me a lapalco any day we got <laughs> good to me on there we got you're quiet it's the fan favorite everybody loves lapalco it's not my uh, favorite but i it's got metairie on there it's i yeah. like that album a lot it was recorded entirely analog in his detroit studio which i had no idea brendan was as much of a analog file as Jack was maybe it rubbed off on him, you know. Yeah. Of his studio, he says, "I never left to a fault to my detriment. I didn't feel anxiety there, but I knew all the while it wasn't healthy. It was the best excuse not to have to go out and live life. I don't have a home studio in Nashville, which eventually, yeah, he would, yeah, before it was demolished and they put up a parking lot. But the uh, the record is named after a main artery in New Orleans around where Brendan grew up. This is when he started to find like an audience. Yeah, the stripes are the stripes are picking up at that time, and you know his yeah. brand of pop is not that dissimilar from the garage revolution. So 
newspapers and magazines are starting to find it too. So music yeah. journalists are starting to, you know, figure out who this guy is. LA Weekly reviews Lapalco saying, amid the crap packaged as pop music these days, Lapalco is both shockingly out of place and instantly familiar, like a fuzzy cashmere blanket you might find on sale at Target. Um, <laughs> Pretty good description good. of, no, of his good. brand of pop. Of the analog equipment that Benson was using, he says, I was really learning to use the stuff that I bought. So the record reflects that journey, all the trials and errors. It sounds analog mostly because it's recorded kind of poorly. <laughs> it's me just poorly. <laughs> he would start supporting some bigger acts at this point, including the White Stripes, the Flaming Lips, to name a few. In regards to the White Stripes, Jack White says, I'm commiserating with him when I hear his music. He's an extremely talented songwriter. I envy his melodies. His approach is different than mine, but I love it. He continues, he's taught me some tricks about miking instruments and production. From him, I've learned that coolness is subjective. Should I do my accent for this? Oh, we haven't done that in a while. From him, I learned that coolness is subjective. Many ideas I usually wouldn't have bothered with, I tried to cultivate because of his inspiration. <laughs> So some of Jack's weird analog tendencies were inspired by Mr. Benson. Also, uh, he would support Jack for a little while there, because I think friend of the show and fellow third man house band member Tom Valenti saw him open for the opener, yes. I want to say, on the Satan tour. So he was yeah. at that with Jack for a couple of years. Yeah, he was he was gaining traction at this point. Uh, Jack's willing to help. Jack clearly loves his music, so much so, like, Jack covers a song off of this album, Good to Me. Mm -hmm. He would cover it in 2003 and put it on a Seven Nation Army single as a B-side. There's a royalty for you. The song mentions a 1980 Volvo, and yeah. apparently that was a real car that existed that Brendan had, and uh, it was replaced it, like in the mid 2000s. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, love um, it. And, yeah. and he found a he stole a van to uh, replace it. Uh, <laughs> I think we have a lead, James. I think we have a lead. He was in need of a car. Co had a van, I'm just saying. There was a drum kit already in it. Mm -hmm. All of this success would lead him to continue making more music for himself. In uh, 2003, he would uh, release an EP with the touring group that he was using with uh, Lapalco that he called the Well Fed Boys. The uh -huh. EP was called uh, Metairie EP. Yes. Which included some songs off of Lapalco and also a demo for the next album which wouldn't be released until the two years after this ep which was alternative to love in 2005 ah, really oh i didn't know that maybe 
Maybe if I lay real still It will go away Maybe it will Maybe this time I won't budge Maybe I just need a little nudge Just to shove in the right direction Maybe this time I won't flinch Maybe this time it might be a sin so that that's that's the first version, and that's interesting. And also on this is "Let Me Roll It." Uh, yes, which was apparently a oh. stage favorite with his well-fed boys during the, mm. the Lapalco tour, and a stage favorite for a couple of well-fed boys in the audience uh, <laughs> who <laughs> shouted at him and his band to play this until he played it. I think for the listeners at home, some context here: James and I got the Metairie EP not long after the Rack's first album came out and that was our first entry point into Brendan <laughs> more or less so that EP holds a special place I think in both of our hearts which is weird because it's one of the worst reviewed things in Brendan's career like I love it though. it's really good but everybody all the critics seem to think that it was a three star material because it was like adding some different elements to Brendan's usually pretty pop stuff you know they were adding a backing band to Brendan's, you know, usually pretty solo stuff. I, to each their own. I love it. I think it's great. But uh, in 2005, he released Alternative to Love. Oh, even better than re- LaPalco, in my opinion. Yeah. Cold hands, warm heart. We just need some time apart. And everything will be okay. He released this on on V2 Records, so he's he's getting there. He's getting yeah, same as the Stripes at that time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and his the song "What I'm Looking For" was featured in a in a car commercial, I believe, a Saturn commercial. And then, of course, but, "Cold Hands, Warm Heart" is yes. on there. And that's it was everywhere. Like, that was like the breakout single. Yeah, I remember hearing that on on VH1. They used that for like commercial music to like plug the the slate, um, if I'm recalling correctly. I heard it in like supermarkets yeah. on the radio. Like it's it's a common radio play song for him. Yeah, you still hear it every now and again. It's a good power pop song. His music's starting to at this point be used in some commercials, some TV, some movies, that sort of stuff. He's gaining a following. He's working to towards it, and he's gaining a following. Yeah, the ty- the album's a lot about uh, indecision and commitment issues. It has a lot to do with him being kind of unsure of how people can come to the realization of commitment and love and that sort of stuff. He he had broken up with his uh, his longtime girlfriend. Aha! Uh-huh. Yeah, that'll do yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, the, a lot of a lot of this stuff is like, how are people willing to do the same thing over and over and over and over again? Yeah. And, uh, when asked about the title, Brendan says, everybody's asking me about love and romance and shit, and I really don't get it. <laughs> Making up these answers, I'm losing my mind. Everyone thinks the record is about love and relationships. I think it's the title. <laughs> <laughs> There's yeah, some of, a lot of them are silly love songs, uh, but that's okay, because that's what I like about his stuff. Now that we're in Alternative to Love, now it's the Brendan I love. Like, mm-hmm. from this point on, pretty much everything he puts out, 
I eat with a spoon, much like he's eating those Cheerios or whatever on the Lapalco cover. <laughs> Going back to his band real quick, it looks like, yeah, those first two records are mostly just him uh, yep. with one or two people maybe supporting stuff. So he's playing a lot of that stuff himself. By the time we get to Alternative to Love, yeah, it looks there's a bunch of names on here, none of which I recognize. So interesting. But 2005, he's still recording music in that little studio attic that he has Mm -hmm. and this is around the time that he's got some songs that need some help and jack white's got some songs (laughs) that need some help and they get together and because they had nothing better to do what do you know a raconteur a wild (laughs) raconteur appears now (laughs) jack white patrick keeler jack lawrence and brendan benson had gotten together specifically once before to do uh, Loretta Lynn's Van Leer Rose, specifically on a song called... The Little Red Shoes? Yeah, Brendan isn't a part of the band that plays on Van Leer Rose, but Brendan contributes... Edits. Yeah, it's like some product, maybe some product, something like that. He has, like, technical credits on it, so it's technically raconteurs. This is this is obviously making waves that Jack White has a, uh, a new band. Brendan Benson's involved. Brendan's fan base, obviously excited interviews are happening. Brendan mentions it in a couple interviews. We'll play some here. When will your record with uh, Jack White be released? Or? I don't know. Probably not till late, later this year or maybe even next year. It's uh, what, what, what it's all it's finished songs? and everything, but what kind of sound is it? Or uh, is it more, uh, it's pretty much, I think, you know, it would be what you would expect. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, there's Jack who brought you know, that sort of hard kind of blues rock and roll side of things to, to the record. And then I think I brought like more melodic and... Did you write together for the record? Or? Yeah. Yeah, we did. It was really cool. I mean, it was a real, real collaboration. I mean, I mean, more of a collaboration than, I, that I've, than I've ever experienced before. I mean, I've written with a few people, not really. But, um, but this was a real, it was a good one too. You know, we, we worked well together, I think. We kind of knew when to step, step back and let the other guy go or, or you know, it was a piece of cake. Okay, know? and uh, will, there, will there also be a single or...? Yeah, 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 sure. You, can you...? I think it's called Steady As She Goes is the single, but, you know, like I said, it's not out for a while, so... <laughs> we have to wait and see. Yeah. Yeah, so does Jack. Jack mem- mentions it on Charlie Rose, too. In that Satan era interview that he and Meg did, uh, if you want to hear more about the formation of the Rackin Tours, uh, you know you can listen to our Broken Boy Soldiers Part One episode. Uh, that one covers it pretty thoroughly. Yeah, we'll go through a little bit of it here, just just as a catch up. So it was recorded in Brendan's attic, and it was built on uh, a collaboration between Jack and Brendan. Specifically, started on "Steady as She Goes" using cliches and that kind of stuff. A lot of people started calling it a supergroup and a Jack White side project. Benson says, what I'd like, dot, 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 is for people not to think that's Jack White's project, side project, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Supergroup mutters White derisively. <laughs> Indie supergroup echoes Keeler. The f*** <laughs> is up with that? It's a band, you know? <laughs> but it begun as a Benson demo, so Brendan is kind of the catalyst to this whole thing they came up with the band name thanks to jack white's obsession with mike wallace who interviewed him for 60 minutes he read something about mike wallace being a raconteur and uh, (laughs) that apparently stuck jack white said that they're learning 
that people think something sounds like Brendan or sounds like me, and it in fact turns out the other way around. On Storebot Bones, Brendan played slide guitar, which is always the first thing I would normally go to. Brendan says, it's like a guessing game for this record, which is why we didn't say who did what on the artwork. For me, it's been especially exciting to try new things and get away from them. I could do impressions, do jack, write a riff that I wouldn't normally write. Cool. This would be a, an enormous success and a big boon to, to Brendan. He would keep touring with the Racks. Uh, he would continue on to do 2008's Consolers of the Lonely, which we will get into this year, Paul. We will, yeah. <laughs> we will do Consolers of the Lonely uh, this year and go over the, all of that. But of the Tours, it, it definitely helped Brendan. And he would say, uh, being in the Tours has changed me a lot. Not musically, necessarily. It re-socialized me. It got me re-enchanted and out of my house and showed me I could do it under the gun in a big-time studio and that I'm not so fragile. My talent is real. Now the tours have reached a much larger audience than I've ever reached. I still don't want to be famous. I'm just hoping to gain some of them to keep going. So this was his way out of his attic. He did it. Yeah. Well, that's great. Good for Brendan. It, he got us. If it wasn't for the racks, I don't think you and I would, uh, uh, with the exception of maybe like Cold Hands, Warm Heart, something like that. But I don't think I would have listened to Brendan Benson or given him much thought. And that's not because I didn't like it. It's because I wouldn't have known to look there. So through Jack's star power, yeah. I mean, I became a downright Brendan Benson fan. I love Brendan. So uh, so I think it did him a lot of good. But you know what? It did a lot of Jack a lot of good, too. Because as you know, as we went over, I keep bringing this up, but as we went over in our greatest hits episode, Jack's greatest hits, "Steady She Goes" is in his top three most popular slash successful songs that he had ever had a hand in writing, across yeah. the board, bar, almost bar none. It's in. I think it's number two. I think it's it's uh, it's Icky Thump, "Steady She Goes," then Seven Nation Army or something like that. So in a way you wouldn't expect, but. I think it did Jack a lot of good, too. It showed that Jack White was more than just the White Stripes. It showed that Jack was more than just that one gimmick. It showed that Jack for was sure. capable of rock, of a, being in a rock and roll band. Yeah, for sure. He was able to bounce, you know, thoughts off of somebody else. Yeah, and Brendan's sound is so damn commercial that yeah. I think it turned people on to him that wouldn't, wouldn't have normally maybe thought to listen to that, to Jack stuff anyway, you know? True. All of this leads to Brendan Benson leaving Detroit pretty much for good. At this point, he leaves his, his little studio attic, mostly because he felt unsafe in his neighborhood at this point. Oh, my. He was stabbed, Paul. Uh, yes. Yes. In Detroit. Uh, he we used to leave about this, his, I think. Yeah. He used to leave his door open by accident, and uh, apparently he chased a guy out of his house in the wintertime. <laughs> he was... To quote Brendan, I had a robe on, slippers, slipping and sliding on the ice. Finally, I caught up with the guy who was three times my size and screaming at him, what's in the bag? I knew he'd taken something. I saw something come up. It was like he punched me in the arm, and sure enough, he'd stabbed me with like a shiv. Wow. The final straw for him leaving Detroit, quote Brendan, I was 50 yards from my house pumping gas. I'm watching the numbers on the pump, and next thing I know, I'm falling to the ground with it, without any concept as to why. The eeriest, worst thing, such a gross feeling, I came to, and some guys rifling through my pockets. I'd been hit wow. in the head and robbed. Somebody threw, a, like, a wrench at his head and robbed him 
at the gas station. Yeah, we and talk then, about this in the Lost Track and Tours episode. Yes, I remember yeah. researching this. Yeah. And then he drove semi-conscious to the hospital. Like, <laughs> oh my god. He said he he immediately went to Nashville and asked for something that was up and coming. Um, yeah. He uh, he says he still gets flashbacks when he's pumping gas. He says, I'm angry about it, but I don't know who to be angry at. They're desperate people, and rightfully so. Detroit's mayors have been famously corrupt, like rock stars with big mansions and assorted weird women, while the city was left curbside. Most people there are doomed at birth. But yeah, it made him distrust people a little more, which isn't something he needed, for sure. Especially right after coming out of his shell a little bit with the raconteurs. But uh, he says, we, we learned soon at an early age that good things don't last. I've gone into relationships thinking that the one I'm in now is slowly curing me. And that relationship, Paul, is, is a good one that, uh, that does sort of pan out into, uh, into his wife with his, his wife, Brittany. Good. Happy to um, hear that. <laughs> yeah. He goes back into his solo work at this point in Nashville. He releases 2009's My Old Familiar Friend. Which was worked on. We we learned in the Lost Raconteurs episode prior to Consolers of the Lonely, he had a real yes. bad experience with that producer. Yes. And, uh, Gil it, Norton was the name. Yeah, Gil Norton, who wrote him really hard, and he's sort of polite about it in interviews, but there's he sort of very directly talks about what a <laughs> that guy turned out to be to him uh, in other interviews. So, yeah, that is... Uh, it's a good album. I wouldn't say his best, but I think... Through the struggle, he he achieved something pretty pretty good. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He says, uh, "I can't say that I loved it the whole time. It was tough for me not to say I'm a control freak, but I don't know. I think he he and I just disagreed on some things. He uh, he didn't love having this this guy producing, but it saw um, Brendan doing music to scratch an itch rather than to live a dream, mm-hmm. uh, which is an interesting." A new thing for him because he's starting to have a family at this point. Yeah. And he's doing things like mowing the lawn and stuff. He says mm-hmm. uh, he's kind of a little more disenchanted with the music as a business again at this point. Uh, th- probably a little thanks to Gil. He says music's all meaningless. <laughs> I don't go around saying it much because it's not very cool or even pleasant to hear but I think it's the sad truth. We make art to plug a void, to think that things make sense. That's why I do it. But in the last two years, I've discovered mundane things like doing the dishes or mowing the lawn, a zen-like healing thing, and I really get off on that. Cutting my grass is just as fulfilling as writing a song, more sometimes. I kind of get that. Like, after getting a house, it's like, well, I kind of really enjoyed doing stuff here. Like, doing a garden can be just as, like, soul-fulfilling as, you know, making an illustration. Sometimes, but uh, you know, he's doing it now as a little more of something he has to get out, yep. but not something he necessarily has to do, like right. to make himself whole. Mm-hmm. He continued writing and playing music at this time, doing a day trotter session. 
Hey everybody, I'm Brendan Benson and welcome to Day Trotter. Look around, could it bring somebody down if I never made a sound again? In your eyes, you've already spread my thighs and you're rocking to the next big thing. Kissing the bride, 45 minutes aside. This was my dream, played out rocking routine. Who sucked out the feeling? Paste Magazine was in attendance for this session. Uh, it's free on the internet if you want to find it just type in brendan benson day trotter sessions uh but benson's wife was pregnant at this time um and, and his kid i don't know if he wound up having another one but is featured on the uh what kind of world single like uh he's really little yeah um, they're sort of playing on the porch and stuff which leads which leads us that's a very good segue into what kind of world and ready-made music um my favorite brendan album what kind of world yep love it it Brandon would, uh, would start to make ready-made music in 2011. He took a brief pause from music before What Kind of World. He was they they had the mini raconteurs like festival tour in 2011, but other than that, yeah. From 2009 to 2012, that's a that's a sizable chunk of time. Yeah, it's it was following the birth of his child and moved away from his own recording to to start producing music from other people. He via Thumped Magazine, factoring in your family life, has that made you think differently about the usual musical lifestyle? Do you feel more like working closer to home now? And Brendan says, yeah, I've always been pointed in that direction, but definitely having Declan, that's his child's name, Declan, Mm. has expedited that goal, which is eventually just to become a producer and maybe score some films, work on music for movies and TV. I just don't want to miss out on my son's childhood, so I really can't hit the road like that anymore until and so he does just that with ready-made music he starts uh, producing some people he finds young Hines. he finds cory chisel the howland brothers who one of the the howland brothers will be on here soon he produced ireland's the lost brothers he produced five albums in 2011 all of which were out of ready-made with with manager emily white to quote Emily, launching ready-made gives us the option of a release platform tailored to each album under the same home. We wanted a way for Brendan to be able to create music when and how he wants to be able to put out the music sans any barriers. The answer to what we were looking for is ready-made. He gets a little tiny studio put together for this. It's very, very discreet. It's in yes. very discreet packaging. Uh, you can't find it on the street corner there's no big sign saying it's ready-made records all that stuff it's apparently been around since the 90s as like his imprint but it's it's gone from a conceptual imprint to an actual label now and it sort of takes a little bit of inspiration from jack's third man operation which was in full swing at this time Yes. To quote Brandon, when the time came to make my fifth album, I couldn't help but look around me and think of the future. I'd see my wife and young son at the studio and knew I needed to figure out how I could put out music in a way that could benefit them forever. Although the music industry is overwhelming to me in many ways, I've realized how much more control I have over my output. Even though I've written, produced, and played the majority of my music, I don't own any of it. Starting a label made sense for me. For the first time in my life, I could own the music I created. So a lot of this is him trying to take charge of his music, trying to do the things he loves the most, which is 
producing and finding music and listening to music. Yeah, and he's very enthusiastic about it when he talks in interviews about Ready Made. He seems just very content to find uh, artists of a like mind or things he happens to enjoy to try and produce for people. Yeah, all the while while still, you know, making his music uh, on his own terms and not having like a huge deadline like he is still kind of on a break at this point in 2011. He's he's creating what kind of world, but he says it like in reference to the mowing the lawn thing, he says I've never been bothered too much by being popular. I'm really happy with my status because I can do regular things. Go to Home Depot. Some of my friends can't do that, and it would suck. Um, yeah, he, he released in 2012 What Kind of World via Ready Made Music. It's a deep-seated knee-jerk reaction. Without fail, the same course of action. It's the truth, but it's always sugar-coated. And the starting gun is never loaded. I take it too hard. said that every record he'd made he'd been able to find a label and that takes time it's a whole new group of people who are saying all the same things i guess i just got fed up and i was tired because i'd want to produce projects and they just sit around yeah it's good stuff him and and his uh, partner emily white were able to put this album out they worked completely analog he says that I, I, well i think it sounds better i think all of my records have been done that way it's never even crossed my mind to not do it on tape I don't know what other people do, and I'm sure it's fun to do records entirely in Pro Tools or digital on the computer, but it seems like the trend is changing, or it's definitely becoming more trendy to record on tape. So I think people are just getting hip to it and asking these kinds of questions. Yep. And so then, he's, he's railing against Pro Tools, too. Uh, all this vitriol against digital production and Pro Tools, I, I kind of used to drink that Kool-Aid a little bit more. I, I think I drank that Kool-Aid right up until Jack's like, yeah, but, you know, f*** it. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? Really? You asked us to go on this journey and then you're like, nah, f*** it. What? Yep, it's an odd look. So I am I am disillusioned and jaded on this whole gotta be analog thing. <laughs> but, but good for him. You know what? The results kind of speak for themselves. I think What Kind of World is one of our, both of our favorite Benson albums. Yeah. It's polished by him. It's made by him. It is as Brendan as you can get. Yes. And yeah. it's it's peak post tours, Brendan. Sounds just like a Raconteurs album. We've we talked about this ad nauseum, but yes. Uh, yes. Uh, it, again, if you want to hear more, listen to our Lost Raconteurs episode. Yes. He would also uh, use this label and this album, What Kind of World, to self-promote a lot more. He even would do benefits for the david lynch foundation they did a a a one night show at the ryman which we'll get into later on in this show called brendan benson and friends uh which sounds like the best variety show yeah yeah benson described it as exciting but also a little daunting they had people like jack white on to for this david lynch benefit they had young hines Corey chisel the howland brothers the animals eric burden was apparently there yeah so a lot of people they were benefiting healing traumatic stress and raising performance 
in at-risk populations. Good stuff. It's not the only time he'd do benefits with David Lynch Foundation. The same year, in December 2013, Benson also played for another Lynch benefit dedicated to Ringo Starr, where he played Don't Go, Where the Road Don't Go. Yeah, Ringo Starr, who is guesting on Jenny Lewis's new album. That is bizarre. Worlds are colliding, Jerry! So... Around 2013, he's doing the, the benefits with, with Ready Made. He's kind of scratching that itch with his music. He wants to keep making music, so he, he does his follow-up to What Kind of World in 2013 called You Were Right. Feel like a joke, a waste of space. Feel like the punchline's on my face. Resuscitate me. Be the one that can save me when nobody else can save me. both know this one as the one with the wolf cover paul yeah Uh, it's fine it's good there's good stuff on it i like this one the the cover is by tyler bergfield it's a piece called wolf in ecstasy you can find him on society six and stuff so you you could buy some wolf in ecstasy clocks Mm -hmm. and cutting boards yeah out there uh dean fertita plays on this song on this album Uh, He does keyboards on it. Uh, Ashley Monroe, actually, who also helped with What Kind of World, continues composing with with Brendan on You Were Right. Mm. And he put this out while awaiting the birth of his second child. He is really growing that family, really mowing those lawns, and I really appreciate it. Yeah. In 2013, later on, he would also put out Willie Mason and Brendan Benson, Upstairs at United, Volume 7. I mentioned this earlier in the show. He cover a bowie song from diamond dogs on this but i had to look into it because i had no idea what this was i knew it was a record store day like thing but apparently upstairs at united is a series of all analog recordings from united record pressing plant in nashville that you'd know as the place that used to press all of jack white's records yeah and they they like to do sessions with different artists this is volume seven where they did it with brendan it's recorded on august 16th 2011 it was put to tape and features brendan and a crew of musicians covering candidate strangers by the kinks beyond belief by elvis costello and he closes with randy newman's love song made popular by harry nilson Hmm. regarding the experience brendan commented and this is coming from united's press release about this i had a blast recording some of my favorite songs in the legendary motown suite at the historic united pressing plant great people great wine it was very special and that's sort of the last we hear of brendan benson until 2018 paul yeah we get the what band is this photo in 2015 which 2014 brendan comments like there's never going to be a rack and tours reunion or there's not going to be a rack and tours reunion and then in 2015, he joins Jack on stage with Loretta Lynn. Yeah. But no new music or anything like that. Yeah, he goes real quiet until, what, 2018, right? Yeah, with Half a Boy, Half a Man single that he put out with Third Man Records that we've, yeah. we've talked about uh, in previous episodes. But Yeah, we talked about it in our Year in Review two, 2018 episode, episode 87, I think. And that is sort of where we're at. Like, there's a lot of speculation between me and you that this is what caused him to possibly rejoin the Rack and Tours, which they released two new songs, you know, in 2018. And so we we have those. That's what Brendan's doing now. He's back in the Rack and Tours. Yeah, we're gonna have to wait till the album cycle really heats up, and we start getting 
interviews and stuff because right now we don't have a whole lot to go on beyond some really awesome Instagram posts showing Brendan and Jack in the studio and stuff. So yeah, it's it's an exciting time because we haven't seen the racks as you say in a long time. We haven't heard from Brendan in a little while. So yeah, good stuff. He sounds great too, by the way. I'll I guess I'll end this part of the episode by quoting Jack White about Brendan Benson. Jack says. He's down on himself a lot, <laughs> much like myself. Aww. So uh, that's, you know, they're they're very alike, very similar. You uh, found his Linus. Yeah. They're <laughs> 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 it's a weird, lovely career, and I love this man, and uh, I can't wait to hear what's what's coming up next with the, the raconteurs. So, yeah. Paul, what do you say we throw it to our third man this week? We're going to throw it to a very special guest third man this week, and uh, I can't wait, James. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. We'd like to welcome Jared Green of the Howland Brothers. Jared, how's it going? It's going good. It's good to be with you guys. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. I'm very happy this all was able to come together, and uh, we're just we're thrilled to be able to talk to you. Love the music. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Yes, and you are quite the musician. You are a multi-instrumentalist, guitar and harmonica and bass and vocals. And Do you want to tell us a little bit about, well, firstly, uh, about you and your music and uh, how you got together with, uh, with your group, the Howland Brothers? Sure. Yeah, the Howland Brothers, uh, we're Nashville-based. I guess we've been down in Nashville since 2005, and uh, I met the original members. Well, the original member and I, we moved down to Nashville in yeah, 2005. But um, the trio, as you all might know us, uh, the trio that was with Brendan Benson on Ready Made Records, that was Ben Plass on bass and Ian Kraft on um, fiddle, banjo, mandolin. We all met up in Ithaca, New York. We were attending Ithaca College. We were in the music school mm-hmm. and uh, became fast friends. Ben and I were actually the same major. We were recording majors. We studied with the classical guitar teacher. And then oh, wow. uh, Ian and I became friends probably about 2003. Uh, I ended up recording his, he had a steel pan band, mm-hmm. I ended up recording with him, and we played in a, a bar band together, and oh, nice. uh, became good friends. He got me into singing folk music and country music. In that bar band, we played some Olden in the Way and, and Willie Nelson. Yeah. Anyways, we met up in Ithaca, New York, in college. We finished college, and we had we actually had a bluegrassy old-time band up there for about a year. It was a lot of fun, and we thought, man, mm-hmm. this this is the kind of music we enjoyed playing. We didn't you know didn't really want to do classical or jazz or or just be in a bar band. Didn't really know what we wanted to do, but what we were doing with the that five-piece bluegrassy old-time string band that was a lot of fun. So we finished school, and Ian and I moved to Nashville together, just kind of you know not knowing anybody, just knowing it was. A hot spot to be. Mm-hmm. Moved down in 2005. Ben Plass, uh, who eventually played bass with us, I don't know when, about 2010 or 11, I think 2011. Right before we met mm-hmm. Brendan, uh, he, he had moved down to Nashville and was bass there as well. But um, yeah, we, we've had a few different bass players over the years, but it's, it's always been Ian Kraft and, and myself. In nice. the Howland Brothers. So, so you guys, so you guys journeyed down there in 2005. That's right around the time that Jack and Brendan kind of made their trek down there too. That must have been a real golden time for like the the influx of talent into that town. I mean, obviously, it's, it had been you know Nashville's a town that's been thriving for 
uh, you know, a hundred years or whatever. But I feel like at your particular juncture, when you got down there, it was a particularly hopping place. Yeah, I loved it when we when we moved down here, and you know, there really wasn't too many people, but all the friends we made and the musicians we met, they were uh, just really great people. I felt like the town was small, and and we were all younger. So uh, all we had to do was go check out music and meet people and and go to parties and and get better at what we were doing, learn and and write music. It was a a great time. Nice. So you start the band, the Howlin' Brothers, and you did meet Brendan Benson at some point, who produced... Two of your albums, Howl in Trouble. How did how did that collaboration begin? Yeah, we we had met Brendan. I think in 2012, one of our mutual friends, Buddy Jackson, who's a, a great artist in town. He would throw these parties, and a lot of musicians would come over, and we'd mainly played old time music. But that's where we first met him, and through Buddy, uh, we were recommended as um, basically extra musicians for a recording session. Uh, for Corey Chisel, who was, uh, mm. I think, one of his first oh, yeah. artists yeah. he produced fellow, for Ready Made Records. Yeah, fellow, I was going to say, fellow Ready Made uh, Record. Yeah. Ready-made. yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of our first uh, real introduction or, or chance to hang out with Brendan, other than meeting him at the party, was, was working with him, trying to... Uh, you know, add to each song that was being recorded. Mm-hmm. So, d- did you guys hit it off right away? Was what was the uh, common ground for talk? Because, because uh, y- you know, I think Brendan from being from Detroit, you know, a lot of his natural inclinations, particularly as a as a musician, uh, sort of lean a little more into the kind of alternative or the rock uh, kind of realm. But <clears throat> it seemed like there was a lot of dabbling in country for from non country artists. Not that your guys are, I, w- I would say specifically country. It's more of like a sort of a blues bluegrass fusion or something like that but uh what, what was the common musicality between you guys did he respond to your sound right away yeah i don't i think we just became good friends because uh we were easy to get along with we were good enough musicians to uh you know play good banjo or, or guitar in the studio and uh, but also at that party and and after that recording session um i think what <laughs> what we had in common was uh we really liked old-time music, and he particularly liked the washtub bass. I don't think he'd ever seen something like that before. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. I love that idea that Brendan's a secret washtub bass fanatic. That's amazing. <laughs> and, uh, said, oh, yeah, we do that sometimes at our shows or at least at parties. But uh, you know that's in a way that's kind of an alternative thing, and and he's he's actually very good uh, on trouble. He he recorded um, he's playing washed up bass on one of those tracks. Oh, nice! But wow, that's yeah. Awesome. So so we, we you know we kind of met through that recording session for Corey Chisel, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, and he knew we we worked a lot in town. We were at that time we were playing about five shows a week, you know, all the same places Wednesday through Sunday. But uh, you know, we were like, yeah, we've been working. On, We've been working a lot in Nashville, and and we love it. And we gave him a couple of our albums, and uh, I think he, you know, he was all pumped up about uh, getting in the studio, working with people. And so, I think before Corey was done, he said, uh, "Next album I want to do or work on is for y'all if you're interested." And so it came pretty quick, wow. and we we're that's yeah. That was our, you know, yeah. it, it was our first offer for uh, basically a record. A record deal or or having someone produce an album for us so, yeah um yeah that's how we met through that recording session and then and then uh, and then we got to work with him the the album you worked on with Corey was i believe old believers and you had mentioned that you had done some albums previous to to this work was it any different than than working with uh in the studio with with brendan and Corey? oh yeah i mean uh, 
all of our other albums we've done on our own time on our own budget so we 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 did uh, at least two albums i think three before that we had saved up money went into a place that was you know affordable an hourly rate and didn't record them like within one week's time we recorded them over the course of like half a year or something like that mm -hmm. but yeah we did an album called uh, tragic mountain songs long hard year and then baker street blues and then uh we met Brendan about 2011, 2012. We made Howl, and then it didn't, mm -hmm. it didn't even come out till 2013. But um, 2013 was a both those years. That yeah, was a lot of fun, and uh, he had a an album come out around then. Yeah, he had a couple yeah. in that time frame. He had What Kind of World and um, so, I mean, Yeah, it was different because you know it, it's it's us saying okay, yeah, that's good enough. I think that's good. It's great. Right. Do we need to overdub more? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> but um, you know, you don't have like someone who's uh, putting up the money to do it and wanting to put their name on it. So uh, other than us, so yeah, it was, it was totally different experience. But uh, it was it was very fun working with Brendan. He's really a great guy. Yeah, his his musical instincts are so they they lean in such a, a similar direction to James and mine that we we find his music kind of like a I don't know sort of like this warm blanket or something. But uh, there's a touch of the familiar, but there's he's also pushing new new boundaries. Uh, do you recall a time in the studio where he pushed you in a direction that you thought you would not have gotten to without him kind of guiding you there, or was it more like like what you're saying is more of like a uh, he's sim he's simply directing what you guys were already doing. Yeah, I mean uh, the first album in particular, we had I think ten days blocked out and uh, twenty songs to work on. Yeah, I remember a couple of those songs. We, we did them several times. Like Big Time was not a two take deal. It was you know, we did that song at least song. probably eight or ten times. And uh, <laughs> a song right after that, Herm Hermitage Hot Step, that took quite a few times. By the time we actually did it, I think uh, Ben, who sang lead on it, you know, his voice was going hoarse. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, he's all about, yeah, oh, you can keep doing it. You know, you can, you got it. He's very motivating. Or, but he's also honest. Like, uh, you know, we do however many takes, and um, you know, that's what's good about having a producers. You might not think it's great, but you know they're listening to it all the way through, and they're saying, "No, that was awesome," or you know, "That was a real mm -hmm. honest performance." And um, so, yeah, it was uh, you know our first time working with the producer, and, and he was great. I got a lot of great stories and a lot of good songs from working with him. Yeah, one of my favorites on that, I had a, actually a question about "Mama, Don't You Tell Me," the the last track on the album. Did I hear? Is that Lily Mae Rishi in there, or is that somebody who sounds yeah, remarkably that's, like that's her? Lily, yeah, Lily Mae Rishi, uh, Frank Rishi, All right. and and All her right. sister Grace. <laughs> okay, of great. Which, uh, great. We've been friends with them since we moved to Nashville. They were they were the very first band we saw playing down on Broadway, which uh, oh, wow. one of the reasons when they were gypsy, we, we loved that town. <laughs> Wow, yeah. this is going on at four o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon, and then we found out they play there five days a week. We can do this tomorrow and the next day. So, yeah, oh, we love we love Lily's Lily May's stuff. I mean, I I got familiar with, but James and I both got familiar with uh, even their, their her gypsy work. Uh, but like her her stuff before she kind of even was a 
functioning adult was still very good. So it was uh, it was nice to hear her on. I thought that was her, and I thought I I thought I heard a susan of Brendan Benson maybe vocalizing in there too. But yeah, I could be wrong about that. Yeah, so it was all that all all a good memory, good experience. Nice. Can you uh, can you tell us a little bit about what your experience with with ready made records was? Um, I know Brendan was trying to get his whole record company basically off the ground. He had a lot of big ideas. Was he working as a booking agent for you guys as well? Like, how did working with ready made go? Well, I think it was interesting. I think it was maybe a learning experience for everybody. I mean, I don't know how many people were on ready made. Brendan, uh, Young Hines, Corey, a few others. You know, they were brand new, spent money in good ways. Like, uh, they paid for, I think, two years of publicity for us, which, wow. you know, publicity is kind of everything in the, if people know about you or not. That was good. Yeah, I mean, ready-made was good. There was, um, like I said, 2012 or 2013, Brendan had an album out then. He toured a little bit, and we kind of went as a package deal, uh, uh, Young Hines, and uh, the Howland Brothers and Brendan. We did, yeah. we did at least three trips together, I think. We went to um, New York, Los <laughs> Angeles, San Diego, to Seattle, and then we went up to Chicago and the Twin Cities. Oh, my God. Yeah. So we... I think... And down to, I think we were we were at that New York show. Oh, all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If it, if it's 2012, we, James and I were definitely there. Yeah, the Bower. That, that's awesome. Bowery Ballroom, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah that's where. Yeah. <clears throat> hey, you guys were great. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a killer memory. So to me, that was the that was the highlight of of, of Ready Made was getting to do some shows with Brendan. <laughs> yeah. And then um, you know, also getting to make some pretty awesome albums and then uh, yeah, you know, get get the word out which 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 helps. Nice. It, it allows you to tour, you know, more successfully. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of places that you got to tour at, you you guys played at the the Ryman Auditorium for uh, Brendan's Lynch Foundation benefit in 2013 with people like Jacob Dylan and Jack White. How was how was that show? That must have been something else because <laughs> that's, no, that's really a, cool. quite it the was, green room. Especially cool because we, we got to actually open the show. So we got to do more than just one or two songs. I think we got to play a half hour. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I saw I saw in your notes you're wondering about the green room. You know, the Ryman, it has, has many green rooms. So like those bigger yeah. names, they had their own green room. We didn't didn't necessarily meet Jacob Dylan or Jack White on that, on that night. But um, all the kind of... Uh, more familiar ready-made artists the ones that played with brendan or with Corey chisel and young hines we were all we were all hanging out in the the one big green room and yeah it was a, it was like a uh, a party it was we're like yeah this is awesome we're here <laughs> we're all pumped nice. up to do this yeah you know uh we'd be hanging out cheering each other on in between songs so yeah it was that's awesome. Great. I mean, and that, and the the Ryman wasn't the only kind of awesome historic Tennessee location. We I, there's some clips online of you guys at uh, the Sun, Sun Studio. Uh, what was it like playing there? That must have been that must have boggled boggled one's mind. I can only imagine it would have boggled it would have boggled my mind. How about that? I, I'll inherit the boggling for this. But were you boggled <laughs> by it? Were you boggled? There's a lot of boggling going on. Well. I don't know. We did the tour. It was the end of the day. They said they were going to film. We were going to record some songs. There's going to be a camera crew in there. So we were just kind of like, okay, let's see what happens. And the engineer gave us the tour and then started setting up stuff. And we were like, okay, 
let's do this. This will be cool. Showed us how how they used to record some sessions, like where the bass player would stand. Yeah, Bill Black. How, how would yeah <laughs> how, how they would get the uh, the vocal placement and stuff. And it was it was it was really cool. It was I don't know mind boggling. It was probably more inspiring. <laughs> There's pictures on the walls of all the great artists that played there. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I don't think we thought much more of it other than that there's three cameras in our in our face. So we were just trying to <laughs> <laughs> trying to keep that cool, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I get the low down Tennessee blue. Mama, last time you rode, you rocked me to the ground. Only song I ever sing is that low down Tennessee blue. Low down Tennessee blue. Every night I walk along. Now that that was uh, that was fun too. Kind of didn't know what to expect of it, and it came out pretty good. Nice. Yeah, yeah, for real. I just wanted to touch back on your style once more. One of the things I got, you know, particularly a song like Big Time, you listen to that and you hear just Robert Johnson flowing through it. Uh, obviously, there's lots of Delta Blues influence in your work. Do you have a Delta Bluesman of choice? Um, <clears throat> I think there's like three or four that we probably listen to the most. Uh, I know Ian would say uh, his favorite would probably be Lead Belly. And and mm-hmm. and muddy waters, but um, yeah, yeah. But you guys did a Lead Belly song at the Ryman, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, I think we did the How How Long Blues, which I mm. don't know if he actually wrote that, but he's got a great recording of it. So yeah, uh, muddy waters definitely a favorite. Lead Belly, and then we also liked uh, Love Howlin' Wolf, of course. Nice. And yeah. uh, another nice, guy yeah. we listened to a lot was Jimmy Rogers, who was I think Chicago oh, yeah. based. Jimmy Rogers. Right. And then uh, just one more to throw out there. I remember listen, we listened to this guy a lot, too. Uh, I think his name was Papa Charlie Jackson. He played the ban- yeah. he played banjo in, in the, probably the Robert Johnson era. I don't know, the 20s or something, but he was great, too. But, yeah, I yeah. guess the, you know, if you think about the raw slide banjo and stuff, that would be kind of like Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Water style. <laughs> sure, yeah. sure. But- I mean, you guys, you guys bounce around to, to a few genres, as, as we said. I think there's also a like a sort of a New Orleans themed kind of uh, Cajun-y sounding sure. uh, song or two as well. Yeah, yeah. The banjo, the banjo plays a big part in that, I think. But yeah, there's definitely some bluegrass, some country, which uh, seems to be kind of carving out a new niche in the musical landscape, so to speak. You have uh, acts like yourself, you have Margot Price, we have the aforementioned Lily Mae, Joshua Headley. Do you have any uh, any insight into the the seemingly newfound appetite for this kind of genre out there? Oh, I think, it- I think people just know the difference between good music and bad music. I think groups like us that do that don't stick to one genre, um, I mean, we're, we're a string band, but... Um, we love the you know, we love bluegrassy stuff and, and the blues, obviously, and our originals yeah. kind of are all all over the place. Um, yeah, but yeah, I think people can recognize. Well, are they good singers? <laughs> Do I like this yeah. music? And uh, is it is it genuine? And I think like the three artists you just mentioned, I think they're they they all have that. They're great singers. Uh, I think their music feels more genuine. You know, they're out there doing it. Joshua Headley and Lily May. I've known them since 2005, 2006, I think. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And they still oh, yeah. they still play on Broadway. And I've we've known Margot a long time too, probably about that long, two thousand seven, eight. I don't know. But uh, from the uh, B- Buffalo Clover days. Yeah, yeah. We used to live in East Nashville, and we'd hang out with them, and we shared a couple shows with them. I think we even played a high school um, or a middle school <laughs> event what? with them. Really? Yeah, like some event. <laughs> I think we did. It was funny. It's wild. But yeah, it's really great to see them getting more exposure because it's, w- yeah, it's well had, deserved. <laughs> yeah, the Grammy nod uh, for Best New Artist was. I, I was surprised that they did it. Not that it's not well earned. Uh, we're huge Margot Price fans, but like the idea that she went that non-genre specific and blew up the way she did is is kind of remarkable. And we're just really happy for her and for the whole for what that means for everybody, you know? Yeah, yeah. and I, I think it comes down to the songs you're singing or writing, and I think they all are singing about real things, or they're just good songwriters, too. And I, I think people yeah. latch on to that. For sure. Um, so let's talk about the last LP you guys released, Cannonball, which you produced yourselves. And now am I, I am to understand that there is a, a new LP coming out. Is there anything you want to... Uh, is there anything you want to tease about uh, about that coming up? And is that a progression from Cannonball? Do you have any thoughts about how uh, how these albums have been sort of building over the years? Can you give us a general uh, general outline of that stuff? Yeah, we did we did Cannonball in two thousand. I can't remember a couple of years ago, two thousand seventeen. I guess it, Seven, 17, seventeen. It came out. Yeah, yeah, it's out there. You can listen to it. I think it's all original. We covered one song, neutral of a word as it is. It's very Americana. It's like uh, yeah, it's a mix yeah. That's of, something I came to a lot listening to your music. Uh, it had a a very Americana riverboat kind of feel, like yeah, uh, Ramblin' Man almost. It's mm-hmm. it's got that. In your new album, we we were able to get a, a brief listen to. It has a lot of those kinds of themes, including a song called "Hard Luck and Trouble," which is fantastic, by the way. Oh, thank you. But uh, yeah, it's. It's got those kind of Ramblin' Man kind of feeling to it, which is fantastic. Yeah, and I think that's what we we don't try to write in one genre. We're not really writing in the country style or the bluegrass style. I think when the song is enough of an idea, you want to keep working on it and you like it, it's good to you. And if, if your bandmates like it, hey, you're going to re- record it, see how it works on the album. So I, I don't know really what to say about these albums <laughs> other than <laughs> people like them. And I, I, ho- I really <laughs> hope they like the, the new ones. It's called Still Howlin', and we haven't mm-hmm. really publicly released it yet. Um, you know, we're kind of a, a self-contained unit these days. We gotta, we're trying to figure everything out as we go still. Right. But uh, it's been good, and we're, we're happy that we, we finally finished it up. And uh, I think in April we'll do, like, a, a public release uh, of it. Have, oh, cool. have a big, nice. big Nashville show. Uh, the venue is still to be determined. We've got a couple in mind. But, um, well, great. I... I tell you, my my wife and I were rocking to it downstairs, and she said this would be a, a, a really fun show to go see. People out there, if you haven't listened to Helen Brothers at all, uh, give them a listen because it is uh, incredibly fun music. <laughs> yeah, it's the kind of music that makes me want to dance, and I like that. I, I really do enjoy it quite a bit. Good, good. Glad to hear that. I do have one more question before uh, before we get going. Your guitar. I need to know the story behind the guitar. <laughs> There's a hole. There's a big hole in the guitar. How did you get? How did you get that? <laughs> oh, that's that's from that's from a whole lot of playing. I've had. <laughs> yeah, it's it's bur- it's just burned through the pickguard over the years. 
Uh, I've had that. Wow. Gu- yeah, I've had the guitar since I was 16, and wow. uh, yeah, over the course of I think four years, those those years where we were playing a whole lot, we were we were playing downtown Nashville a couple times uh, a week. We were playing in in Franklin, north of Nashville, and we were also I think playing a farmers market or two. So we were playing a whole lot, and uh, a couple of those gigs were acoustic, and, and uh, it's, mm. just, it's just from playing, overplaying, trying to pick solos and, and strum hard enough where I, I can hear myself with a loud banjo and a guy who can slap the bass loud. So, <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. Uh, it's just where that's what it's from. That shows dedication to the craft and dedication <laughs> to the music. I mean, a visual representation because the music speaks for itself. Uh, I know you've got to get going, but is there a place people can find you online uh, and and listen to your music? Is there where can people pick up some of your albums? Well, we have a website, thehowlandbrothers.com. Got uh, a lot of information. I think our store. We got to check up on our store, but you know you can buy our music on iTunes or Amazon. Yeah, uh, you're on Spotify too. On I Spotify, Spot- yeah, yeah. And uh, I think by April we'll have uh, the new album up on all those sites as well. Yeah, everybody go check them out. Thehowlandbrothers.com. <laughs> Thank you, Jared. We really, really appreciate the time, and I appreciate the music. Uh, it's fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us, Jared. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. James, we learned so much about Brandon Benson today, I don't even know where to begin. What was your favorite part? I loved when he asked what my name was, and I told him it was Jack White, and then I took off my trench coat and I said, gotcha! We've got some people I think we want to thank, James, this week. We have some uh, some new people and some regular listeners. We have some new listeners on Facebook we would like to uh, thank for helping to talk about the show and help support us online. We love hearing from you guys on the uh, on the internet there and uh we i would like to start with someone named blessings sithole who uh who liked our 2018 year review so thank you blessings sithole (laughs) (laughs) we have kimberly mattis we have james santos we have herbison magno see we have chris smith arthur sousa jose carlos laura north thank you laura we have Orlando Silva, thank you Orlando, Jessica Renly, Catherine uh, Paredes. Don't forget Michael Grant Glob. <laughs> so many. Thank you for interacting with us on social media. And uh, James, I think we have some uh, regular listeners. You want to do a couple here? A couple regular regular listeners? We'd like to thank some regular listeners who are here with us day in, day out. We'd like to thank Brian Walter, be nicer to me, Yvette Wilkins, Wilkin on Sunshine, and Brendan and Smith. Hey, can I add one? Yeah. Can we add Melissa Swenka to this list? Sure. Let's do it. She's been supporting us and leaving us lots of nice comments and things, and we always love hearing from Melissa. So why don't we add Melissa Swenka to the list here? And um, she's going to need a name. Ben Swinka? How about... Paul, I'm just going to say I'm, I'm vetoing that one, too. I don't love it. Yeah, we'll come up with one for you, Melissa. Don't, don't worry. This thing is... It's more like jazz than a, than a formula. You know, we, we got to bounce a couple things around, you know, kind of freestyle a little bit. Yeah. Come up freestyle with... Freestyle is 
is right. I think we've got a little too much freedom if I had to put a pin <laughs> in it. Melissa Apple Blossom? Uh, I feel like it sounds like you're mispronouncing in Spanish. <laughs> well, we'll get there one we'll, day. We'll get, yeah. Nobody's, you know, nobody's perfect. If you'd like to be somebody that we shabble through and shout out on the show, you can interact with us on social media by going to facebook.com slash thirdmen. You can tweet at us at thirdmencast on Twitter and go to thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com. You can go to our WordPress page where we post the shows and some images and things there. That is thethirdmen.wordpress.com. And then you can send us an email, thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is brought to you by Pippa who hosts our fine program, Pippa's Wonderful Spot, where if you're an aspiring uh, podcaster, I, we highly recommend Pippa. They host our show. They have wonderful customer support. Their analytics are second to none. Can't recommend Pippa high, highly enough. So check out Pippa. They're great. And then you can go to YouTube where James does some awesome animations. And so anyway, James just did a new one about everybody's favorite character, Carl Butterball. So you should check that out. It's very, very funny. And uh, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. It helps the show out tremendously. And uh, as we say every week, if you, in your review, somehow work in the word posers, however that winds up being, we will send you something. We will send you a prize. We will send you, just let us know that you did it. Show us a screenshot. And we're happy to mail you some swag for the show. And uh, swag from the show, James. What a Mm. wonderful transition. Yeah. I think people might be able to find show-related materials (laughs) on the internet. That is a great transition, Paul. Uh, If you would like (laughs) to wear some of our logos on your bodies. (laughs) (laughs) Much like earlier, I would like to apologize on behalf of James for the way he phrased that. You could find some of our merch on our Society6 page. You can find that at society6.com slash Kaminsky Family Podcasts or at bit.ly forward slash third men merch. All one word, all lowercase. You can find it there as well. So feel free to go there, explore, perhaps buy a cheese board. Yeah, buy a cheese board. Uh, James will if, James will send you cheese, right? Yeah, if you get a cheese board, you can perhaps maybe receive some cheese product from me. I'm not going to say it's going to be cheese, but it's going to be the flavor of cheese, and you can Whoa. use it on that cutting board. Whoa. And it'll be great. Promises, promises. So that's enticing. And we and we do have a new logo up there. Right now, uh, your podcast's Not Dead logo is up and available now. Really? I didn't know that. that. That's awesome. Yeah. So you could purchase that on a shirt or a tank top or a tote bag or a cheese board. I did click the cheese board option because I had to. They're flying off the shelves, Paul. (laughs) People want them. Yeah. So, Paul, we'd also like to thank Susanna Roundtree for the wonderful intros and outros of our program and... Sam Kuber and Tom Valenti for the help with the theme song, We're the Third Men. And I think that'll do it. We really did forget how to do this damn show. <laughs> oh, man. Thanks for reminding me. James, until next week, I'm going to be looking for a home with an old familiar friend of mine. Aw. And I will be looking for a home in a trash can so that I'll be there on garbage day. Oh, that's nice, James. You did a good thing. I did a good thing. All right. We'll see you in two (laughs) weeks, folks. Bye. I forgot how to do this show. (laughs) 
For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. to a guy played africa by toto on a squash that's something we could do yeah james is there something we should be squashing <laughs> it's a freaking squash gotta have my squash because sometimes if i use the internet while we're on these calls it leads to disasters like uh the game show episode <laughs> I was a little gratuitous with six minutes worth of bloopers, but I really wanted to paint the picture of just how much of a struggle that episode was. It went... The bloopers are great. And it smells an awful lot like dog turds. Virgin Records took an in... Here's the truck. I don't know. Anyway, that's... (laughs) It adds texture. That's a... That. <laughs> that. <laughs> Alright. There ain't our man said I don't hear a single. Where are they racing to? It's a small street. Who who wins? The high school. One. Go. Go. <laughs> All right. I, I promise you that's that sounds stupid every single time. <laughs> so that was what I was going for. But yeah, yeah. No, James, you're kind of you're a homeowner now. You see a nail, you hit that right on the head. Do a little scramble job. A little scramble amble. Uh, thank you to blessings. Uh, sit hole. Yes. Ble- to the sit holes around the world. <laughs> to Mr. and Ms. <laughs> sit hole. Um, and I'm just swimming and in Paul, that. The, the podcast's canceled. So, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. This is not how we're ending this damn show. <laughs> Sorry, Brendan. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be good. I can feel it. <laughs> <laughs>